Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You have pain in your joints and you don't really know why. Your friends have told you that your weight might be contributing to that, but you honestly don't know how or ultimately what you can do about it. There's plenty of good evidence to suggest that weight loss has an important role in improving both pain and function for people who have osteoarthritis. But it's really easy for a healthcare professional to tell a person with osteoarthritis to lose weight. But deploying that advice is substantially more challenging. Where do you start? What evidence is there to support that weight loss has a meaningful effect. What are the key principles about changing often ingrained behaviors? Are there simple tools that will enable someone to track their progress? What dietary interventions might work best? You've lost the weight, but how do you keep it off? In this episode of Joint Action, we dig into the how and why of losing weight for osteoarthritis. The purpose is really to unpack this complicated and often personally challenging area and identify what tricks there are to losing weight and keeping it off. We're replaying segments from two prior episodes. One, about the science of weight loss and osteoarthritis. Why do you want to lose weight? What are the potential benefits? And in addition, and probably most importantly for you, the how. So what different methods can be used to lose weight and some tips and tricks in doing so? I hope you find this useful, and it's part of a few episodes we're doing to recap the core treatments of osteoarthritis. Up first, we're featuring Steve Messier, who spoke to us about losing weight and osteoarthritis in Season 1, Episode 4. And in this particular segment, we'll cover a lot of different topics, but most importantly, some background about why excess weight has an impact on joint load, what the benefits of losing weight in osteoarthritis are, how much you might need to lose in order to gain that benefit and is more weight loss better, what's the most effective way of losing weight, and what readily accessible programs there are if someone wanted to implement that intervention. I think most importantly for our healthcare systems, we also touch upon, you know, despite the fact that this is cost effective, most healthcare systems are not reimbursing or supporting people who want to lose weight with osteoarthritis to do so. And in addition, you know, what barriers there are to weight loss and how one might overcome them. What impact does excess weight have on osteoarthritis and joint loads? And you've sort of been the doyen in this field and led a lot of the work. So you could just tell us a little bit about that. I mean, it has a tremendous impact. Obviously, about half the people who have knee osteoarthritis are either overweight or obese. The impact of that excess of weight influences a lot of things. One, the obvious thing is that it influences the joint loads. Every time you take a step, it's 
two to four times higher in joint loads on your knee than it would be if you were normal weight. Uh, and we'll talk about what happens when you try to lose weight later. But uh, as you increase your weight, the load on your knee increases exponentially. It's not just a one-to-one -one relationship. But the other thing that uh, obesity does is it increases inflammation. And when I talk to patients, I talk about the inflammatory markers. And you remember the first video game, you probably weren't born yet, David, but, um, <laughs> but Pac-Man. Right, it was Pac-Man. I think actually Pac-Man's coming back. But you know, you have that Pac-Man and it's going and it's trying to eat things. Well, that's what these inflammatory cytokines do. They go and they eat the cartilage and they cause inflammation. And so so we think there's really two major pathways to osteoarthritis. One is just the load on the joint, and the other is the inflammatory pathway. And obesity impacts both of those things. And so you get kind of a double whammy there. Yeah. And Steve's been the one who's led our understanding of how obesity impacts joint loads. And I think the other important point in what Steve was just saying about half of a person's risk of developing osteoarthritis is attributable to body weight, to overweight and obesity. And so what are the benefits if you have osteoarthritis in losing weight? Well, the first thing before we get to that is that losing weight is not easy. And losing weight and keeping it off is even more difficult. Why is losing weight so difficult? And why is keeping it off so difficult? Well, because your body acts in starvation mode, right? It increases feelings of hunger. It suppresses satiety. It slows your metabolic rate. And all these things then are an attempt to, for your body to defend your higher body weights. So there's a lot of biological things you're fighting against all the time. So don't ever want to say that, you know, why can't you lose a few pounds? It is not easy to do, right? So uh, you're in for, if someone's trying to lose weight and keep it off, they're in for a fight, <laughs> okay, uh, against their own body. And... And people need help to do that most of the time. People need help. You know, we have patients in our study and one guy got up and said, why didn't my doctor tell me I needed help? You know, it was really impactful. It was just a short statement, but it meant a lot. So people do need help. And that's what we're here to do is try to inform them and to help them lose that weight. So what happens when you do? and how much weight loss is good for you. So first thing is for your joint loads, for every pound that you lose, you lose four pounds of stress off your knee. And, uh, and just for those who live in empirical countries, um, Steve's from the US, so they haven't necessarily migrated to kilograms yet, but the, the same translates into <laughs> kilograms. Ratio is still the same. <laughs> the ratio. <laughs> uh, well said, well said, my friend. <laughs> so it's a one to four ratio, whether in pounds or kilograms, okay? <laughs> and, and so you're getting, essentially, as you lose weight, you're getting a lot of bang for your buck, right? I tell our participants, I wish my stock portfolio did that well. Well, right now it's not doing well at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think you can speak for all of us there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's a one to four relationship. And so there's a lot of motivation to lose even a little bit it takes a lot of stress off you. So then how much? Well, five, we've done a study and just as little as 5% of your, of your weight, if you lose 5% of your weight over a period of 18 months, your pain will decrease by 30%. To give you an idea of what that means, about if you're taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, about half the people who take those get about a 30% decrease in pain. Okay, so we're talking on average with that weight loss. So you're getting a lot more bang for your buck than you do even with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So we did that study, and as most Americans will be, we thought, well, if 5% is good, what happens if you do more? And so we did a study with 10%, which you were a big part of, David. It was called IDEA, 
And indeed, we saw that a 10% weight loss essentially doubled the effect. That is, you had a decrease in pain of over 50% and an improvement in function of about the same amount. Importantly, also, uh, we did a psychological aspect to this study, and we improved people's self-efficacy or the confidence that they had in themselves, increased about the same amount as function did. So virtually every single outcome that we looked at, the combination, now the other thing, it was the combination of diet and exercise that was the best. So this study had exercise only, diet only, and diet plus exercise. All three groups did well, but diet plus exercise was the clear winner on everything. And how much exercise? Just a modest amount of exercise. A little walking, a little strength training, three times a week for an hour, right, for 18 months, and a 10% weight loss was the key. And without that weight loss, just the exercise by itself is good, but it's not nearly as good as when you have the weight loss with it. So the weight loss is really the key. Now, you've already touched a little bit upon this in terms of 5%, a 30% improvement, a 10% weight loss leading to a 50% improvement in a person's symptoms. Is more weight loss consistently better? Yeah, because we then looked with the IDEA trial, we then looked at people who lost 20% or more of their body weight. That's a lot of weight. (laughs) And what we found was that, well, 10% with exercise, of course, with uh, that no, no, well, this study was just, it didn't matter whether you had exercise or not, okay? So uh, 10% weight loss, between 10 and 19% weight loss is the best, all right? But if you continue to want, it well, is recommended, but if you continue to want to lose weight beyond the 10%, what will happen is you'll get a 25% improvement above and beyond what you get with 10%. Right. But that's a lot of weight to lose, and we don't normally suggest that because uh, it could get discouraging to try to lose that much weight from the start. So you know, we go in increments. Let's get to five first, and then let's get to 10 by 18 months. And if people are doing really well and they get to 10, and they go, you know, I, I feel good. I, and if they want to continue to lose more weight and, and it's deemed that it's, it'd be healthy to do that, right? Because we have our physicians and we allow them continue to go ahead and lose weight. And it makes a difference. It makes a difference. But the increment from 10 to 20 is not as great as it is from zero to 10. That's really good. And you've already, again, touched a little bit upon this in terms of what's the, the most effective way to lose weight in terms of being the combination of diet and exercise. But I just wonder if you could unpack that a little bit and explain, I guess, the environment that you've set up um, in the work that you're doing with the people around you, but also sure. the the aspects of the diet and a little bit more about the strength and exercise component. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a, a former engineer, right? I was a civil engineer. So from an engineering standpoint, the losing weight is all about an equation. It's calories in and calories out. Personally, and I wouldn't tell our patients this, but personally, I don't care what calories you're eating, right? Just eat fewer of them. Burn more than what you're eating. But a good amount of our participants, most of them, really kind of latch on to the quality of the food that they're eating. So we have our interventionists who are skilled in nutrition and also into the psychological aspects of how to present that information in a good way. And so they get really into that. Uh, right now in the study we have uh, about, I'd say about half of them that are on the diet and exercise uh, using my fitness pal. And they love it. They love it. They can get it right on their cell phone as long as they can see it. <laughs> that's an app that's freely available and allows a person to track how much they're burning as well as how much they're taking in. Right. And it's pretty easy, you know, because all the foods are there. So it's not like you have to look them up and how much, what the calories are. It's just, oh, it's a, just a click. And, and so, you know, and we want them to get excited about it in any way that they want. There's more than one way to do this. Some people just want to count calories. The women tend to want to count the calories more than the guys for some reason. Uh, so they would rather count the calories. The guys would say, just tell me how much weight I have to lose and I'll lose it. that kind of thing. 
all of our interventionists are trained by our health psychologist in social cognitive theory, which is really self-efficacy, right? Having confidence, instilling confidence in the patients that they can do this. So the treatment then is presented in the same fashion, no matter who's doing it. And everyone is, is trained that way. Even the people who are blinded to what group they're in and just do the testing, they are also trained in social cognitive theory. And what I say is every single person who comes into contact with our participants can either have a positive effect on them or they can have a negative effect. Whether you're an undergraduate student volunteering right, or you're the PI of the study, right, every time you interact with the participant, there's a chance you can have a good effect or a bad effect. And one bad effect outpaces 10 good effects. And so we are really careful, especially with our students who come in, that the minute they walk through that door, they have to be on. They, they cannot afford to say something that really turns on from participants. So, so we have that. And, and I think that really has a lot to do with the adherence that we have and the retention we have in our studies, which I think is not too bad. It's pretty good recapitulating that supportive environment where a person gets adequate help and encouragement from from the staff is is really important and you're in the process of doing some further work where you're doing this in a community to see if that can be implemented on a wider scale and that's obviously really important outside of the context of a clinical trial to see that we can translate that into into real world but i think it's you know it's important for people to understand that steve People around the world, including in Denmark um, and we in Australia, have done done this this sort of implementation work where we've got Steve's results and we've implemented that on on a larger scale and have obtained similar results in terms of pain and function. So it can be done, but it's really important you find someone to support you through that process, whether that be a dietitian, a nutritionist, someone with hopefully adequate psychological support, so that they will support you, so that there is someone to keep you accountable and. And move you through that. And David, I think, you know, right now in the world we're living in right now is a challenge, obviously, because we don't have face-to-face contact with folks and and you and and Kim are, are more expert at this than we are as far as doing this all from telehealth, you know, and uh, uh, we're struggling with that right now. And our our staff is, is doing a really good job of doing that, but it's not having face-to-face contact with folks is, is difficult. Yeah, and it's, uh, it, I don't want to underestimate the importance of having that face-to-face contact, but at times, at times like this, it's really important to try to avail yourselves of that remote access, the telehealth right. opportunities. We'll share some of those resources and links to remotely delivered services so that people can hopefully look at some of that information and access some of those remote services. But if you could just unpack a little bit the dietary intervention, just in terms sure. of how many calories, sure. how you implement that and the exercise. It depends on, on their body weight, but a minimum of 1,200 calories a day if you're a female and 1,500 if you're a male. And that depends on, on your body weight to begin with. They can have up to two meal replacements a day uh, for the first six months, and then their third meal, their dinner is just about 500 calories, you know, and is 500 to 750 calories, and is um, just a normal, healthy dinner, low in fat. And we don't ask them to deny themselves of anything. If they want a sweet, they can have that. Just try to have less of it, but try to stay within your calorie budget. And they're gradually weaned off the meal replacements to the, and then they substitute things on their own for the meal replacements. And what often happens, David, is that they'll, they'll start off and, and they'll get to a point where they hit a plateau. Lots of times we've seen this about seven or eight percent of their body weight. And we want them to get to 10 and they get to about seven or eight and they kind of can't get any further. So first thing we ask is, do you want to go further? Some people get the seven or eight, and even though we want them to get the 10, what really counts is what they want, right? And they get the seven or eight and you go, wow, I look great. I feel great. I think I'm gonna stay here. And we go, okay, 10 is better. 
The research shows that 10 is better, but if that's where you want to stay, then let's work on you staying there. But if they want to get there and they're having a difficult time, then we'll put them back just for a short amount of time on those meal replacements, kind of as a boost to kind of get that extra few percentage. And then the exercise is pretty simple. It's walking 40 minutes a day, three days a week. So we do 15 or 20 minute walk separated by a 15 minute strength training and then another 15 or 20 minute walk. Uh, and we put the strength training in there because as you lose weight, some of that weight that you lose is muscle mass, right? We would like it to be all fat mass, but a good percentage of that weight that you lose is muscle mass. So the strength training is to help to reduce the loss of muscle mass as they, as they go along. And that combination really works, the exercise and the diet. It really works. And we don't ask them to lose too quickly. Right? And we have alert values. If they lose too much too quickly, then we stop, make, make sure we check with their physician and make sure that they're not getting sick or something like that and that, and that they're still doing it in a healthy way. Fantastic. And what readily accessible patient-friendly resources are you aware of that can help people to implement that style of change? Yeah, well, you know, I said my fitness pal, the US Department of Agriculture has one called my plate. And that's really nice too. Not so many of our, our people use that one, but they're both apps, my fitness pal and my plate are both apps. And they pretty much do the same thing. It's whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah, and we'll uh, we'll include both of those resources in the show notes and in addition to that, some additional programs that might help to implement changes similar to what Steve's talking about. Is it cost effective and why are we not seeing healthcare systems adopt these more widely? Yeah, that's a great question, David. We have a team of people from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. It's part of Harvard and they are cost effectiveness experts. Uh, the person who leads that group is named Elena Losina. So she took our idea data and where we had 10% weight loss with diet and exercise and looked at the cost effectiveness of that and found that it was highly cost effective. Highly cost effective. They talk about something called quality adjusted life years gained. And what essentially that means is one quality adjusted life year gained is one year, one additional year of perfect health. And in general, the, the rule of thumb there is $100,000 per quality adjusted life year gained is, is cost effective. Uh, and $50,000 per quality adjusted life year gained is highly cost effective. Diet and exercise was only $34,000 per quality adjusted life year gain. And so it's highly cost effective. And that's what people who run hospitals want to hear. We've been trying to do that in addition to everything else that we're doing. We've had several hospital systems. Uh, one, the University of Missouri hospital system and a hospital system here in North Carolina have taken up and started implementing our program in their areas with their patients. It's a slow process uh, because the administrators want to see the bottom line work in their favor very quickly. And of course, in the beginning, there is, uh, there is cost to this. But the cost compared to the cost it takes for a knee replacement is so small. It's just been difficult. One of the people in charge of one of the hospitals in Minnesota said to me, he says, well, he says, you have a chance. Better, he says, I see a lot of people that come in and have ideas, but they have no data. We have data. We have data to show that this really works. So I think what it's going to take is one group to really embrace this throughout the whole system, and I think you'll find it will go fast after that. So we're working on it slowly. Uh, it's, it's not easy. Yeah, and I really encourage you to continue to do that. And we're having obviously some success in implementing programs similar to that in Australia and a number of other countries where they're doing these multidisciplinary programs. And I think it's incredibly important that our healthcare system moves from one where it advocates for health and doesn't necessarily react to a person's pain with expensive 
both investigations and interventions, as you say. Uh, the cost of joint replacements in this in this scenario varies a lot between healthcare systems, but in most healthcare systems around the world, it's probably about twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars a piece. So, you don't need to get too many people to lose weight in order to see a benefit there. I've had orthopedic surgeons from the west coast of the United States to the east coast call me and go, "Steve, you got to do something about these patients with all this weight." I said, "I can't do all these knee replacements." So an orthopedic surgeon tells you that he needs help because he can't do all those surgeries. You know there's a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A healthcare system needs to change. But for the individual who wants to lose weight, I just wonder if you could expand a little bit upon the barriers there are to losing weight um, and how one might overcome them. The barrier to lose the weight is one, David. But I think the bigger barrier is once you lose the weight, it gets very discouraging if you regain it. And as you well know, we're trying to work on that. We have people who have lost weight and we're trying to see if they can uh, maintain that weight loss for long periods of time. And it's very difficult to do. And there's very little, if any, studies that have shown that there are actually effective ways to, to do that. So many people who are overweight have lost weight and then regained it, lost weight and then regained it, and it becomes very discouraging for them. And while we have good data to show how to lose weight, we don't have good data to show how to maintain that weight loss. And as you know, we're working on that now, and we're not the only ones, but uh, I think that's, that is the big barrier. Uh, more than losing the weight is maintaining the weight loss once you've lost it. And what strategies are you using in order to encourage people to, to maintain the weight loss? Sure. Having confidence or self-efficacy to lose weight is much different than having the confidence that you can keep the weight loss off, right? that you can maintain the weight loss. It is really different. You're overweight and you decide I want to lose some weight and you get into a program like ours or like yours and you're motivated and you lose the weight. You feel really good about yourself. And because you have the confidence that you can do it either through the interventionists or you already had it on your own, right? You have, you have that confidence or you gain that confidence, but that confidence is different than once you've lost the weight to now, Okay, I've got the rest of my life I have to keep this off. <laughs> okay. And and that's a different animal. All right. And no one has figured out yet how to do that. But we think that having an increase in self-efficacy or an increase in confidence to be able to maintain that weight loss is has got to be something. And that's really a psychological aspect. So we really have a health psychologists that work with us and and, and that's the aspect that we're embarking on is to try to increase their confidence that they can maintain the weight loss that they already have. Yeah. yeah. And I think a, a really key message that I think Steve is portraying here is that it's not something that a lot of people find great ability to do themselves completely. And it's important to, to find an alliance with someone who's going to be supportive of that process so that they can carry you through that. We also replayed some content about implementing dietary change. So how you, might you go about losing weight through dietary intervention? And this content was through a conversation with Rosie Venman, season one and episode 20. So if you want to go back and have a listen to some more things that Rosie said, please go back to that episode. But for the purpose of today, what we're going to do is recast some of the topics we covered with Rosie, and in particular, the key dietary strategies that she, as a clinical dietitian, often gives to people who have knee osteoarthritis why that weight loss might be important in reducing inflammation, some tips and tricks on portion control and some behavioral challenges that people might be having, and then you know dig in a little bit further to some different dietary interventions that might be pursued, including 16 and 8 that many of you have thought of, very low-energy diets, and then touch upon some of the challenges that people might have in deploying that and any concerns that they may have in doing so. I think most importantly for many people who lose weight, the challenge really is maintenance and, you know, how do you keep that weight off? 
So we touch upon some of those topics and encourage you to monitor your gains and set goals. And then in brief, in closing, we touch upon some newer options, particularly related to drugs that might be useful for obesity, as well as bariatric surgery. What are the key dietary strategies that you often find yourself giving advice for in people with osteoarthritis? So I think it's always individual, but there's often a common themes that go through um, the sort of strategies that we use. I think for a lot of people, more and more, mindful eating is something that we try and encourage a lot of patients. So that's taking time, you know, to appreciate your food and not eating quickly. And I think that's something that, yeah, I'm definitely trying to encourage more and more. Other sort of key strategies are around more general things like portion control and proportions of you know, protein and carbohydrates on a plate. And then also adjusting people's meal patterns, encouraging them to eat more regular meals and not miss meals as well. Uh, I guess other things that we're starting to use a bit more of are more intensive approaches to, to weight loss. And that might be, you know, five to style approaches or the use of meal replacements in helping to achieve a more faster weight loss. Yeah, so just digging a little bit more into a couple of the concepts you spoke about there, in particular um, the portion control and the balance, but balance between uh, protein and carbohydrates. For a person who has osteoarthritis, what, what would be optimal? Mm. It's a good question. And I think because activity levels are often quite low in this population, their energy needs are also quite a lot lower. So typically carbohydrates are something that we try and uh, reduce in the diet. They're obviously still very important in other ways, but so in a proportion of a meal, for example, a quarter of your plate might be your carbohydrates. So your potatoes, your rice, your pasta, and then another quarter of your plate might be your, your lean meat. And then the rest is really vegetables. And that's what we try to encourage is trying to build your meal around vegetables rather than building it around, you know, your big steak or, or your mashed potatoes, that sort of thing. Yeah. So if you remove so much the flavours and things and bring, bring in the colourful things, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. 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 Veggies taste good. <laughs> uh, what are the patterns that you find most common that are problematic in, in the population, again, that we see? I think portion size, as we were just talking about, because a lot of people have eaten the same way from when they were a young, active person and haven't adjusted their meal pattern or meal size, especially maybe after retirement. Uh, and the same goes with their pattern of eating. So they may have always uh, missed meals because they were busy working and they're continuing to do that. And then we get into the realm of non-hungry eating or like habitual eating in the evening. Um, I guess another thing is with more sedentary lifestyles um, and boredom eating, seeing a lot more people eating lots of discretionary foods or junk foods, and that makes up a big proportion of the calorie, daily calorie intake. Um, and that also goes along with alcohol too. So in this patient group who may be more sedentary, um, yeah, those sort of themes come about more often. And, and again, it's obviously hard to generalise and you want to individualise as much as you can. But for people who might have skipped meals in the past, was that particularly breakfast and were they having more of the caloric load at night time? Mm -hmm. And from a discretionary source perspective, do you think that's potentially influenced by some of the, the lack of caloric intake earlier in the day? Yeah, yeah. So I'm often seeing people skip breakfast and then they come home from work and they're starving and they want to eat everything that's in the cupboard, which is fair enough because their body's really asking for nutrition the whole day. And they're often also really dehydrated as well because they are busy and they maybe skip drinking too. And then food choices towards the end of the day, maybe we're also tired and stressed and we tend to reach for things that give us that mental hit of sugar and fat. And so you're right, often we see people who um, reach for junk food at the time of day as well. Yeah. I mean, so obviously counterbalancing that, you, the advice would be try and shift some more of your intake earlier in the day. Try not, try not to skip those meals. But how do you pre-plan avoiding uh, raiding the cupboard and having bad food choices later in the day? Yeah, I think it starts with your grocery shop for a lot of people that they need to really think about what they're bringing into the home because if it's there, your eyes are going to see it and you're going to want to eat it. So if you can start by looking at your cupboard and really trying to finish off or get rid of the things which are you know are going to be calorie dense like your biscuits and your sweets, chocolate, 
um, and even things like sugary cereals and muesli bars that you may reach for when you're hungry. Trying to fill your cupboard full of things which are low in energy density and healthy, like fruits and vegetables and whole grains as well. Yeah, no, brilliant. Now, obviously, a lot of those concepts are probably more related to, for a person who's got osteoarthritis who may be above a healthy body weight. Are there other common dietary pieces of advice that you might give for a person who's got maybe a more systemic inflammatory problem that may travel part and hand in hand with osteoarthritis, like reducing inflammation and changes that you can advocate for in a diet? Yeah, and there is a little bit of evidence around kind of a, not so much an anti-inflammatory diet, but eating foods which support our body and, and might reduce inflammation. So the Mediterranean style diet is often something that we kind of go towards. And it's not just, I guess, because it's got a lot of those healthy omega fats and, and those sort of anti-inflammatory sort of style ingredients. It's more, I guess, in general, a healthy diet. So less saturated fat and, and fatty meats, more whole grains, pulses, those sorts of things, which are generally quite healthy. I would also say that junk food is something that can contribute to obesity and also, I guess you could say it's an inflammatory sort of food in that way too. Yeah. And so for the Mediterranean style diet, just expanding on that a little bit further, but my understanding is that they tend to promote foods that are probably richer in omega-3 and reduced in omega-6. But what types of foods have more omega-3 and which have more omega-6 of yeah. the common foods that we might eat in a Western diet? Yeah, so foods high in omega-3 would be things like your oily fish, uh, maybe your mackerel, sardines, if you like sardines, um, and salmon. Again, just thinking about the person who has osteoarthritis, who's above a healthy weight, there's lots and lots of different diets that are out there that, you know, you hear about them in the lay press, you have friends come along and say, oh, I've done brilliantly on this. What options are there? Yeah, there's a lot of information on the internet and probably a lot of information for chronic conditions that can make it very confusing. So I think we've got to take a lot of the stuff that's on the internet with a grain of salt and really, it is hard, but you've got to think about the evidence that's behind it um, and who also is behind it. Um, is it coming from a reputable source, um, maybe a government source? But with that in mind, there has been a lot of talk about foods that can worsen osteoarthritis, um, but we know that there's no evidence for those sort of foods, like, for example, avoiding tomato or, or those sort of uh, high purine foods, or people would say, or nightshades. So those foods we can definitely, and they're very healthy for us. In terms of dietary approaches that people can take for osteoarthritis and weight management, a low-calorie diet or a low-energy diet is, is, I guess, a first step. So reducing your total energy intake. Um, and then we can move then forward into things like 5-2 style approaches or intermittent fasting or using things like meal replacement. So increasing the intensity of, of the diet approaches. So what is 5-2 what is and what's 16 and 8? What, what do those numbers mean? So a 5-2 style diet is probably, I guess, a broad concept now. I think a lot of people are taking it in different ways. Uh, but it's mainly around reducing total calorie intake on just two days a week, um, around 500 to 800 calories on those days. And um, you can do it in the days consecutively or in between days. I guess the aim is to reduce your total energy intake for the week, but you can eat what you normally do on the other days. I was reading something recently where uh, people who did this style of diet you, you think they would eat more on the other days, but they actually um, ended up eating the same or less. So it can be quite an effective strategy for a lot of people. However, uh, I guess it's got to be for the right person. It's got to be for someone who has the time to put into those two days and who can fit it into their lives. The 16-8 is based on hours of fasting. So that might be skipping one meal in the morning and, and eating later in the day or, or vice versa, maybe um, skipping dinner. I, I don't really know much about the evidence around that sort of fasting approach. I guess, like I was saying before, skipping meals altogether can sometimes be a little bit difficult in your hunger throughout the day and getting enough nutrition. And we also hear about these concepts of LED and VLED. And what, what do they mean? So LED or, and VLED are either a low energy diet or a very low energy diet. 
Um, and those terms, the low energy diet usually means we're in uh, a deficit of calories or you know, around 500 to 1,000 calories. And then a very low energy diet can be as low as you know, 800 calories a day, for, so very low in energy. And the very low energy style diets typically focus on aiming towards ketosis or a ketogenic style diet. Um, and that basically means we're not using glucose or carbohydrates for energy anymore. We're using fat as our source of energy. Yeah, brilliant. So we, we'll dig into those a little bit further in a minute. But from the experience that you've had dealing with people that have got osteoarthritis, what, what options have you had success with? I think more recently I've had more success with the intensive style approaches. So using things like meal replacements or very low energy diets. But I've also had a lot of successes with mindful eating and portion control and just take, looking at things on a broader level um, and allowing patients to just take a step back and look at everything that they're doing. So it just depends on the person that you're working with and what they're willing to do as well. Brilliant. All right. Now let's dig a little bit more into a couple of those options which you've had success in, both the low energy and very low energy diet. You've explained a little bit about the differences between those two, but if a person were interested in deploying a diet like that, where do they start? How do they get going? Yeah, and you can, you can actually buy these sort of products off the shelf, but I, I would really encourage people to see a dietitian and speak to their GP before doing diets like this because often we're changing our complete diet and we're changing our nutritional composition. And it's really important that we get that right. So that these sort of diets and these sort of uh, this sort of weight loss can be managed in the long term. So if someone was to come to me um, and we we talked a bit about using these diets, the first thing would be to think about what sort of approach they wanna they wanna take. So as I said, they could do something along the lines of a low energy diet. So that might be using neural placements for just one or two meals a day, or they might want the more intensive approach in replacing all of their meals. So really nutting out how feasible it is going to be for them to use these meal replacements and how yeah how intensive they want to take it fantastic now um from the viewpoint of i guess some issues that i think you probably know a hell of a lot more about than i but what are you any comments about the nutritional adequacy and side effects a person might get while they're on those meal replacements like diets, there are a lot of things on the internet to buy. Um, there are a lot of meal replacement brands out there. And that's another reason for seeing a dietitian or speaking with your GP to make sure that you are choosing one that's going to give you the best nutrition. And whether maybe if you are using a particular one, you might need something extra in your diet, like a multivitamin or something like that. So I think some key nutritional things to look for in a meal replacement are um, the protein content. Because if you're not eating full meals, you're not going to get those normal proteins that you're having. Uh, the other thing to look at is the carbohydrate content. Because if you're aiming to get into ketosis, you obviously want that to be very low. And then the other thing is the micronutrients or the vitamins and minerals that are in there. And we want to make sure that you're getting enough of those. So if you are having only meal replacements, you're getting everything your body needs every day to function. Are there any side effects that you've, you're aware of for people who go on meal replacements? So people who do the more intensive style approach using only meal replacements, some of the things they might experience, and probably the one I've seen the most is a change in their um, bowel habits. So they might end up with a little bit of constipation. And a lot of that is probably due to having no, you know, no carbohydrates in the diet. So they're not having the same fibrous foods they were having. They're only having veggies. And then also, they probably need to look at how much fluid they're having. They tend to maybe drink a bit less. So that's one thing we definitely encourage. Other side effects people will likely get in the first couple of days is hunger. And that is a very normal thing. And that's the hardest thing to get through in those first few days. The good thing about going on a ketogenic style diet is by the kind of fourth day or so, hunger actually subsides. And it's one of the benefits of going on that sort of diet. It's good to know because I think a lot of people, when they first start on it, they get on it for a couple of days and they say, well, gosh, this is way too hard. I'm never, never going to survive. Yeah. Now, are there any people out there with particular diseases that we shouldn't be advocating diets like this for? Yeah. So the, the, I guess if we're talking the, about the more intensive style um, ketogenic sort of diet or using meal replacements, we've got to be aware of some chronic conditions, some conditions that maybe their medications needed to, need to be managed. And this is another reason I would always say people need to speak to their GP. So things like high blood pressure and diabetes definitely need to be monitored if you're going on a diet like this. 
and also people that have maybe chronic conditions such as renal disease, they need to be very closely, closely managed by their GP or their specialist. We also should think about maybe the older population with these sort of diets. Often they may have lost a bit of lean tissue or muscle tissue, and so we want to minimise losing that further. So fast weight loss, we might want to consider as not so much of a first option for that group. Yeah, and I think the other, the other point that we made a few weeks ago when we were talking to Steve Massier around the role of weight loss is that it's really important to ensure that a person continues to do some form of exercise, particularly strengthening exercise, so they don't lose their muscle bulk and they're predominantly losing fat. Now, you've alluded to this a couple of times, but there are different brands of meal replacements that are out there. Um, and also just some comments about what brands there are and issues related to cost, because I know that'll be germane to most people out there. Yeah, there is a big range of cost. And often with that, sometimes does come a different nutritional profile. I guess the main one probably people know about is OptiFast. That's the one that they often use for patients who need surgeries and things like that. That brand also has a lot of support on the internet and lots of information available. Um, there are other brands such as OptiSlim, there's Manshake, there's Aldi, and they all range in costs. So I think it's, as I said, worth um, taking, if you're interested, taking that product with you and showing a dietitian or your GP and saying, is this going to be right for me? What would be the average cost? And let's, let's work on the assumption that people might be having, you know, two meal replacements a day. What mm. would be the rough average cost for Optifast, whether it be a, a bar or a shake? Oh, probably around $3.50 or something like that. Yep. Um, so I guess if you're actually replacing meals with these products, you may actually be saving money because if you're buying meals out or you're cooking large meals, that might actually cost you more than these meal replacements. So unless you're, I guess, providing for a whole family and it is an extra cost, this could be quite a cost-effective diet approach. Yeah, brilliant. Very helpful advice, very practical advice. Now, let's work on the assumption that you've had success, you've lost weight, then you get to your next challenge, keeping it off. How do you encourage people to go about doing that yeah i think what you were just saying before about setting realistic goals is a very important thing in that in long the long term continuing to set yourself goals whether they're around your weight or whether around your food or your activity or something in your life that just keeps you motivated setting uh, smart goals or you know the realistic achievable goals is really important and other things i guess is with, with these meal replacements is we know you can actually continue to use them in the long term. There's been some research to show that weight maintenance can be achieved with using these intermittently throughout, you know, years to come. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, so if we're looking at trying to encourage people uh, to lose weight, how do they monitor uh, the gains that they've made and how often would you get a person to weigh themselves for example mm. i mean are there any simple ways that we can encourage people to set goals so yeah i would suggest people not weighing themselves every day and weight is often a big thing for a lot of people throughout their whole lives particularly maybe women as well and i try not to really focus on i know it is an outcome for this patient group but trying to not weigh yourself every day and for that to be the kind of the main thing in your mind, but maybe weighing yourself weekly or every couple of weeks and maybe writing down your progress on a piece of paper. And also, like we were saying, filling out a food diary so you've got a bit of that accountability there. It's always helpful as well to put some post-its around of, you know, motivating quotes and, you know, helpful reminders about your healthy eating as well to keep yourself going. And also, you know, sharing your weight loss with someone else I've had a recent great experience working with a couple who are both trying to lose weight together and just seeing them bounce off each other and, you know, wanting to share the same healthy, healthy ideas has been really, really nice. Yeah, so I strongly endorse exactly what Rosie's saying. I mean, if you can find a peer to share this journey, that's great. If you can find a health professional that you work well with that can help coach you through that process and set realistic goals is another great way. So maintenance is often hard and um, another approach that people take as opposed to the intermittent use of meal replacements is pharmacotherapy. So there are drugs that are out there and where this all fails, potentially consideration of bariatric surgery, but we're not going to get into that today. So I'm hoping you found the content from today helpful. By no means are we suggesting that weight loss in the context of osteoarthritis is easy. It's not. 
more often than not, healthcare systems don't you support you to do it. Society as a whole, in many ways, is encouraging us to be more sedentary and to take food options that are less healthy. But by giving you this information today, we're hoping that it informs you about the things that you can do and why you might do them. But I think most importantly, it's the how. You know, How do you go about losing weight? How do you keep that weight off? And what tips and tricks there are for you to deploy so that you might ultimately be able to keep that weight off. Irrespective, hoping you found the content of today helpful and look forward to talking to you on a further episode down the track. Thank you so much for your continued support. And between now and when we next speak, please do take good care of yourself. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 